0: Right now, my listeners can give armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. Winning the lottery is a dream for so many people. On the surface, it seems money can buy some level of happiness and put an end to many problems. In the case we're examining today, one lottery winner used his winnings to help his community. His generosity extended not only to his family and friends, but to people whom he didn't even know. When this man suddenly could not be located, his family wondered where he had gone. Did he use his lottery winnings to go on a much-needed vacation, exhausted from all the people asking for money? Did he flee to get away from legal trouble he was in? Or could it be possible that someone made him disappear? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of lottery winner Abraham Shakespeare. This case takes us to Lakeland, Florida, a town just east of Tampa that is filled with early 1900s architecture. In fact, many of the buildings in and around Lakeland were designed by the renowned American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Lakeland, the town as hinted in its name, boasts numerous lakes. The most notable, Lake Mirror, is surrounded by a captivating landscape. Many famous athletes call this lake town their home, including Chris Sale, Dwayne Bacon, and Justin Forsett. Though Lakeland is known for both its natural and man-made beauty, it is within this picturesque setting where a very ugly crime took place. After drilling through a thick concrete porch and digging through nine feet of dirt, A tip from an anonymous informant was confirmed. A plastic bag containing the body of a missing man named Abraham Shakespeare was found, surrounded by rope, cleaner, and other suspicious materials. Investigators would discover that Abraham, who they found buried in a backyard, had lived a life full of extremes. Extreme gain, followed by extreme generosity, all leading to an extreme loss. And the story of Abraham's tragic death began with an extreme stroke of luck. Abraham Shakespeare was born on April 24, 1966, in Lakeland, Florida. Raised by a single mother, Elizabeth Walker, Abraham's childhood was relatively normal. Although there were times in school that he got into trouble for fighting and not maintaining grades, which may have been exacerbated by many undiagnosed learning disabilities. Despite being passed through the grades, Abraham was functionally illiterate. In seventh grade, he dropped out of school. From that point on, he worked odd jobs to make extra money, typically physical labor or construction jobs. During this time, Abraham amassed a criminal record with convictions ranging from assault and battery to theft and robbery. By 1995, he had served two prison terms and was back living with his mother, where he would remain for several years while attempting to get back on his feet. After being released from prison, Abraham began working multiple jobs, trying to find his own way in life and get out of his mother's house. Abraham typically worked more than one job in order to keep up with bills. In November of 2006, he was working as a laborer and a truck driver's assistant. During this time, he had a child with a woman named Antoinette Andrews, though they were no longer together. Abraham was paying her monthly child support, which wasn't easy for him to pull off, given his financial situation. On November 15th, 2006, Abraham was riding to a work site with a coworker named Michael Ford. The pair were driving from Lakeview, Florida to Miami on an overnight trip. Abraham's job as a driver's assistant involved helping to navigate and also keeping Ford awake during the overnight trip. Before hitting the road, the pair stopped at a Townstar convenience store and gas station in Frostproof, Florida to fill up and get a quick snack. Ford asked Abraham if he wanted a soda or anything from the store. At that time, with only $5 in his pocket, Abraham told Ford he would pass on the soda, but gave him $2 to purchase two quick-pick lottery tickets. Ford went inside to purchase drinks and his cigarettes, and then he bought the two lottery tickets for Abraham. Back at the truck, Ford handed Abraham the two lotto tickets and then proceeded to open up his carton of cigarettes. It was at this moment that Abraham Shakespeare's life changed forever. He didn't know it at the time, but in his hand, he was holding a lottery ticket worth millions. He could have never known this lotto ticket would ultimately be a death sentence. The next day, Abraham checked the quick pick winning numbers, and he was shocked at the results. The numbers read 6, 12, 13, 34, 42, 52. His ticket was a perfect match. He had just won Florida's $30 million jackpot. Suddenly, Abraham transformed from a man who worked multiple jobs just to keep up to a man who would never have to work again. Mostly everyone who knew Abraham Shakespeare described him as caring and loving, someone who would do anything to help take care of those around him. This trait became much more visible after he hit the jackpot. In Florida, Lottery winners do not have the option to accept their prize anonymously. If a winner wants to take the money home, their identity has to be made public. Whether he wanted it or not, Abraham immediately became something of a local celebrity. After he won, Abraham opted to receive one lump sum instead of getting a $1 million per year payout. This left him with about $17 million after taxes and fees. With his winnings, Abraham bought a $1.5 million house in a gated community, as well as a BMW and a truck. Abraham freely shared his wealth with family members. To his stepdad and stepsisters, Shakespeare gave upwards of $250,000 each. He also gave his biological sister some money. When he tried to give his mother money, however, she protested, saying that he had the devil's money and that she wanted nothing to do with it. Abraham, however, was able to pay his mother's bills and bought her a house. He quickly set up a trust fund for his son, mentioning that he wanted his child to have opportunities that before he could never have imagined. As is often the case People from all over came to Abraham with a forged relationship, claiming that they were in desperate need of financial help. Abraham characteristically found it difficult to say no to these people, so he helped them as well. He took care of several mortgages, bought many cars, and even paid for the funerals of people he had never before met. Abraham loaned money to people asking for no interest in return. These loans, however, were rarely paid back. One man who took out a loan from Abraham was a friend named Greg Smith. Greg owned a barber shop that Abraham frequently visited. When Greg heard that his mother's home was in danger of being foreclosed on, he approached his newly wealthy friend and asked if he could borrow the $63,000 it would take to pay off his mother's house. Greg promised to pay monthly and to pay interest. Abraham easily agreed to the loan. Greg, different from most people who took loans from Abraham, paid his friend back monthly, but always paid more than they had agreed on each month. Around this time, about six months after accepting his winnings, Michael Ford, Abraham's ex-co-worker, came back into the picture. Ford sued Abraham for half of his winnings, claiming that the winning ticket was actually his and that Abraham took the ticket from him. The lawsuit eventually went to trial and lasted long enough to cost Abraham over $800,000 in legal fees. Despite the financial setback, Abraham won the lawsuit and was able to keep his winnings for himself. During the trial, Abraham brought in a bag the size of a beanbag chair that was filled with lotto tickets, showing just how frequently he bought these tickets. This evidence was apparently enough to show the jury that he asked Ford to buy the ticket and that the winnings belonged solely to him. Although he came out of trial victorious, Abraham's troubles were only just beginning. Abraham's instincts were to help people in need. When he saw people in his community, broken families on the verge of poverty, fighting to earn a decent living, he was compelled to action. Despite his good intentions, Abraham's giving dwindled his winnings much faster than he realized. After only two years, he had just over $1 million left of the $17 million that he had been awarded. Abraham was financially inexperienced. He had yet to invest or save any of his money other than the trust fund he had set up for his son. The properties he had purchased with his winnings amassed an annual property tax that he would be unable to afford with the money he had left. Abraham's kindness and generosity was breaking him financially. Despite his body being found in early 2010, Abraham Shakespeare's disappearance was noticed as early as April of 2009. Strange happenings had been surrounding Abraham's location for months before his body was found. Even so, he wasn't reported missing until November of 2009, several months after it was first noticed that he hadn't been seen in a while. In October of 2008, Abraham met a woman named Doris Moore, or Deedee to those who knew her well. Deedee expressed interest in writing a book about him, which would chronicle his efforts to help his community after winning the lotto. The two made plans to meet and discuss the book prospect further. Abraham was very candid with Deedee, telling her that he was down to just over a million dollars left in his bank account. In turn, Deedee shared with Abraham, that she was in the process of publishing a book about finance management. Seeing that Abraham could use some help in this arena, she offered to assist him in getting a handle on his financial situation. Didi would help him recover all of the money he had loaned out, and also take steps to ensure that Abraham's money would last a lifetime. Didi's professionalism showed in the way she dressed and the manner in which she spoke. It seemed clear that her expertise could be very helpful to Abraham, so he enthusiastically accepted her offer, and the pair began working on a plan to get his finances in order. Set up a business bank account together, titled Abraham Shakespeare LLC, an account to which both parties had equal access. Didi began her plan by setting up payment plans with people who'd taken loans from Abraham. She was not messing around. Her approach to recovering this money was fairly aggressive. She would threaten foreclosure or repossession if the loan payments were not made. With someone by his side advocating for his return to financial stability, it seemed as though there was light at the end of the tunnel for Abraham. But strange things started to happen, and soon Abraham's family would be wondering where he was. Although many of us are working from home lately, a lot of women, including me, still want to have a strong work outfit game. This is just one reason I've been telling everyone about beta brand dress pant yoga pants. Seriously, they are the trifecta of work pants. They're comfortable, body flattering, and completely office appropriate. Dress pant yoga pants feel like your favorite yoga pants, but they are not yoga pants at all. They're stylish, versatile, and professional pants that will have you looking your best whether you're working from home, the office, or on a date. These pants are made so well. No more tugging at your uncomfortable work pants trying to make them fit better. Do yourself a favor and put a few pairs of these pants into your rotation. There are many styles and colors to choose from. On Mondays, you can wear the bootcut style. Midweek, go straight leg. And Friday, honey, just go for it and wear the skinny cigarette pants style and snap your fingers as you enter the office as any boss chick would. Right now, our listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash murderish. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 25% off. I always read ingredient labels for the food I buy. When I learned about Care Of, a wellness brand that makes vitamins and products to maintain your health goals, the first thing I did was read the labels on their products. I was so happy to see that Care Of formulates their products with clean ingredients backed by science. Whether you're wanting to boost immunity, treat your skin, boost energy, or just maintain good overall health, care of has got you covered. It all starts with a quick online quiz, which is like consulting one-on-one with a nutritionist. After you take the in-depth quiz and answer questions about your lifestyle, diet, health concerns, and more, you'll instantly get a recommended regimen of care of vitamins, grab-and-go powders, and more. I'm not getting any younger. So during my quiz, I indicated that I was interested in anti-aging products. I'm excited about the vitamins and collagen that were recommended to address my concerns. I love that of makes cute packets that I can throw into my purse and take during my busy day. And with cold weather coming in, with of, I can easily add ceramides to my regimen in order to battle dry skin and lock in hydration. For 50% off your first Care-of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code MURDERISH50. That's TakeCareOf.com. Enter MURDERISH50 for 50% off your first Care-of order. During the time that Abraham and Didi were working together, Abraham sold his house to her. This came as a complete surprise to his family, given how much he loved that house. When Didi said that he sold it to her for only $650,000, less than half of what he paid for it, this left Abraham's family even more curious. That said, Abraham was known to be very generous and it wouldn't be too out of character for him to sell his house and lose money as a result. In addition to buying Abraham's house, Didi also bought herself a brand new car, another new home, along with many other luxury items. Then, in April of 2009, Didi told Abraham's family and friends that he had left town for a while. She explained that he had grown tired from everyone asking him for money and that he just wanted to get away from it all. Didi told his friends and family that she had booked Abraham a well-deserved vacation that could last anywhere from two weeks to months. Abraham's loved ones knew that he had been worn down from all the chaos after his winnings, so they weren't alarmed after he decided to take a vacation. However, after a few weeks passed with no contact from him, they began to worry. Abraham's mother got into contact with Didi to see if she had any new information from her son. Didi once again told her that Abraham was on vacation and that he would come back when he was ready. The family, however, continued to press Deedee for more information. Where did Abraham go? When was he coming back? Why hadn't he called? While Deedee was being bombarded with questions regarding Abraham's location, something happened that relieved some family members but alarmed others. Elizabeth Walker, Abraham's mother, received a long-awaited text message from her son, explaining his absence. He wrote that he needed to get away and that he was on vacation for a while. Miss Walker, however, sensed that something was very off about the text. It was well-written, easy to read, and grammatically correct. Abraham was functionally illiterate, and according to his mother, he would be unable to write this text message on his own. Despite Miss Walker's suspicions, Abraham's family continued living life as normal, assuming he was fine and really just on an extended vacation. Every few weeks, his family checked back in with Didi to see if there was any update on where Abraham was or when he would be home. Didi echoed the same explanation every time. Abraham's family trusted Didi Remembering how she offered to step in and help him with his finances, they trusted that she knew where he was and that she was keeping in regular contact with him. During this time, Dee Dee continued making rather large purchases, a $90,000 Hummer for herself, and a $70,000 Corvette for her boyfriend. To Abraham's family, Dee Dee was someone who appeared to be independently wealthy, so these purchases were not of any concern. In August of 2009, Abraham's family were still wondering when he would be returning home. They had not seen him since April, and communication, for the most part, had only been through Abraham's financial manager, Dee, Dee Moore. Despite being told that Abraham was on vacation, his family's concern was growing. They came to believe that something bad may have happened to him. It was at this time, however, that a letter was delivered to Abraham's mother, Cedric Edom, Abraham's cousin, delivered a letter to Miss Walker that was addressed from her son. The letter contained a necklace with a cross pendant and $100. The letter was written and signed by Abraham Shakespeare. Once again, however, this scared Miss Walker more than it comforted her. She knew the extent to which her son was illiterate, and she was certain there was no way he would have been able to write this letter to her if he was alone on a vacation somewhere. She began to worry more at this point, but once again, she resigned to wait for her son to come home so she could speak with him in person about where he had been and what he was doing. For months, Dee Dee had reassured Abraham's family that he was on vacation somewhere, and for months, his family had believed her. However, in November of 2009, eight months since he had been last seen by his family, Abraham Shakespeare was reported missing by Cedric Edom, the cousin who delivered the letter to Miss Walker. When Cedric officially filed a missing persons report for Abraham, he dropped a bombshell statement as well. Cedric said that he had been forced into covering for someone who wanted Abraham's family to think he was okay. It was at this point, on November 9th, 2009, that an investigation into the whereabouts of Abraham Shakespeare finally began. Authorities in Lakeland, Florida, were notified of the possible disappearance of a man who had recently become something of a local celebrity. Sheriff Grady Judd and Detective David Wallace began working tirelessly on the case, hoping to locate Abraham and reunite him with his family. After looking into his actions after winning the lottery, authorities quickly realized that Abraham had been taken advantage of by those in his community. But, by all accounts, he was more than happy to help these people, even if it meant dwindling his own financial status. At first, it appeared to investigators that nobody had anything to gain by harming Abraham, but they continued on. Given that Dee Dee Moore seemed to be the last person who saw him, investigators decided to pay her a visit. From the investigator's standpoint, Didi was kind of odd, and prior to speaking with her, they'd already discovered that she had a criminal record. As they continued looking into Didi, investigators noticed some oddities that indicated she might have a motive for making Abraham disappear. Authorities uncovered the joint business bank account that Didi and Abraham had opened together and realized that she had just as much control over the money as he did. They also discovered that Deedee had been spending money from the account. When investigators spoke with her for the first time, they realized something else that struck them as odd. She had been living in Abraham's house. When she was asked why she was living there, Deedee told investigators that she had bought the house from Abraham before he left on vacation, despite her claim, there was no documentation to prove that she was the rightful owner of the house or that there had been any such transaction. Investigators were very suspicious of Dee. however, they didn't have much to go off of at the time. The investigation continued, but authorities kept close tabs on their primary suspect, the Polk County Sheriff's Office interviewed Abraham's family extensively, asking when they last saw him, what they knew about his supposed location, and anything else that might help to locate him. The family was only able to tell them what Deedee had been telling them. Surprisingly, in the midst of the investigation, Elizabeth Walker received another letter from her son claiming that he was okay. Again, Miss Walker was left feeling afraid because she knew her son could not have written this letter. She passed it on to investigators in hopes that it would help in their investigation. Meanwhile, authorities realized that at some point, Dee, Dee had taken Abraham's name off of the joint business account, leaving her as the only person with access to the money. When questioned about it, Dee gave a few varied reasons for her actions. Initially, she said that Abraham didn't want to pay taxes, so he allowed her sole access to the funds to deal with this issue. Later, Dee told investigators that Abraham didn't want to pay child support, so he cut all ties to his money. Unable to prove that she had done anything illegal, authorities continued to watch Dee's movements. By this time, they were almost certain that she had something to do with Abraham's disappearance. On December twenty seventh, more than a month after the missing persons investigation began, Miss Walker went to dinner with Dee Dee Moore. The two were eating dinner at a local cracker barrel when Miss Walker received a call. Looking down at the caller ID, she realized that the call was coming from her son's phone number. She quickly answered the phone, but struggled to hear Abraham over the loud noise in the crowded restaurant. Despite the noise, she was able to hear him say that he was all right and that he can't come home just yet, though no reason was given. He then told her not to worry and that he was taking care of himself. He hung up, and the brief conversation was over. Dee Dee quickly asked Miss Walker about the phone call asking if she felt better about things now, and Miss Walker said that she did. After this, Abraham's mother excused herself from the table for a moment. While away, she immediately called David Wallace, the lead investigator, to tell him about the phone call. She explained to him that she got a call from Abraham's cell phone, but she emphasized that the voice on the other end of the call did not belong to her son. Wallace immediately got to work on the lead. Authorities were able to trace Abraham's phone quickly after the call came in, and they realized that it last pinged off of the exact same cell tower as his mother, Elizabeth Walker's, phone. This meant that Abraham, or at least his cell phone, was nearby. Further tracing led to a more specific location where a close friend of Abraham was identified as the user of his cell phone. Gregory Smith, the owner of the barbershop that Abraham frequented, was brought in for questioning, and his statements stunned investigators. Greg told investigators that Deedee Dee had gotten in touch with him once the investigation into Abraham's disappearance began. He said he met her in a parking lot, where she then made him get into her car. The two began driving around together, during which time Greg recalled that Deedee Dee was panicking, saying that investigators thought she killed Abraham and that she was going to be framed for his murder. It was at this point that the conversation turned. Greg said Deedee reminded him of his debt to Abraham. Greg had borrowed $63,000 to pay off his mother's mortgage to keep it from being foreclosed on. Greg had been diligent about paying his debt to Abraham, always paying more than the amount due. Regardless of this, Deedee told Greg that she needed help and that he was going to be the one to help her. To ensure this, Greg said Deedee told him that one of two things could happen in regard to his mother's house. If Greg agreed to help her get the heat off her back, the loan would disappear. If Greg did not agree to help, she would force the loan into default, putting his mother's house at risk of being foreclosed on. Given those options, Greg said he agreed to help Deedee. He said she assured him that Abraham was safe, and he believed her. Greg told authorities that during this time, he helped reassure the family that Abraham was okay and that he was just on vacation. With a new ally in her corner, the first task Dee, Dee requested of Greg was for him to call Abraham's mother. Greg told authorities that he thought this was odd but that he believed it was just to help calm Miss Walker down. Dee Dee told Greg that she was going to take Abraham's mother out for dinner and instructed him on the exact time to call her. Dee Dee coached Greg on the story that he needed to convey to Miss Walker. According to Greg, he was to act like he was Abraham and tell his mother that he was on the run because he had accidentally bought an underage prostitute and had been filmed having sex with her. Greg was told to say that he was scared he would be arrested, even though it was a misunderstanding, and that this incident was the reason he had not been home in such a long time. Greg told authorities that he questioned whether the story was true, and Deedee admitted it was fake, but she said it was necessary in order for his mother to have answers. Greg agreed to call Miss Walker. While she and Dee Dee were at Cracker Barrel, Greg called, but he fell short of saying exactly as he was instructed. Not wanting Miss Walker to worry, instead, acting as Abraham, Greg told her that he was fine and that she shouldn't worry. After Greg shared all of this information with investigators, their suspicions about Dee Dee were confirmed but they needed more concrete evidence connecting her to Abraham's disappearance. To achieve this, investigators asked Greg if he thought he could act as an informant. They told him that all he would have to do is continue his relationship with Didi, record as many of their conversations as possible, and give all of that information to them. Greg, excited to help with the investigation, immediately agreed to the request. As it turned out, this investigative move would prove pivotal to the case. With help from Greg, authorities began receiving new and incriminating information about Dee Dee, information that would come in handy as they prepared to charge her with murder. Though authorities were fairly certain that Abraham had been murdered, they were still missing one thing, a body. Meanwhile, Deedee wasn't helping herself out by any means. She gave varying statements to investigators, all of them painting Abraham in a terrible light. The story she told most often was that he was on the run from a drug dealer whom he owed a great deal of money. She told stories about how Abraham didn't want to pay child support and that he assaulted a woman and went on the run. Whatever the story was, Dee Dee was adamant that Abraham was alive and well, and that he just wasn't able to return home because he had done something wrong. At this point, though, nobody believed her, and everyone feared the worst. It wasn't until Greg began working for authorities that a break was made regarding where Abraham, or his body, may be. On January 27th, after receiving a tip from Greg, who had recently spoken with Dee, Dee, police swarmed the house of Dee's boyfriend with a warrant to search the property in hand. Authorities made their way to the backyard. When they reached the outdoors, they observed a recently laid concrete porch. They put in a request right away to excavate the porch, which was granted. After excavating and digging over nine feet deep, something was spotted down below. It was at this time that authorities found a trash bag full of something heavy, surrounded by rope, cleaning supplies, and other items. The trash bag was removed, and after confirming the contents of the bag, everybody's worst fears were confirmed. The bag contained the remains of someone who was presumed to be Abraham Shakespeare. After the almost mummified body was examined, the medical examiner confirmed that the remains were that of Abraham Shakespeare. He was found to have two bullet holes in his chest, indicating that he had been shot at close range, which led to his death. After finding the body and processing the crime scene, on February 2nd, 2010, Dorice Dee Moore was arrested and initially charged with accessory after the fact. Dee denied any involvement in Abraham's murder and continued spreading a multitude of stories surrounding his disappearance and death. This was not Dee's first run-in with the law, and it was also not the first time she had been involved in a convoluted conspiracy plot. Her lengthy criminal record showed multiple instances of tax evasion, fraud, theft, extortion, and more. She had been convicted of insurance scams and suspected of many more. One of these convictions showed just how far Didi was willing to go to get what she wanted. In 2001, she bought a new SUV, one that she could not actually afford. Struggling to keep up with the payments, but also not wanting her vehicle to be repossessed, Didi devised a plan. After hiding her SUV inside the garage of a mutual friend, she was ready to carry out her scheme, which was drastic by any measure. Didi threw herself over the side of an interstate and waited for someone to find her. When a passerby stopped to see if she was okay, She claimed she was carjacked and raped by two Hispanic men. Didi was taken to the hospital, where she met with authorities, recounting for them the event that she had so carefully planned. It did not take long for authorities to figure out she was lying. Her car was subsequently repossessed, and Didi was charged with false reporting of a crime, for which she was given one year of probation. Scenarios like this surrounded Deedee, however. Nobody in Abraham's family was aware of her criminal past when she offered to help him get back on his feet. When they learned the lengths to which she had gone for money, Abraham's family knew that she was wholly responsible for his death. At the time of her arrest, Deedee's bail was set at $1 million, she was formally charged with first-degree murder on February 19, 2010, and she submitted a plea of not guilty the following month, although Dee, Dee would not go on trial for over two years. On November 26, 2012, Doris Didi Dee Dee Moore's trial began, with Judge Emmett Lamar Battles presiding. Court-appointed attorney Byron Heilman led the defense and assistant state attorney Jay Pruner led the prosecution in a trial that lasted about two weeks. The prosecution produced over 30 evidentiary DVDs that incriminated Dee Dee Moore. These DVDs included recordings of her interviews with police, secretly recorded conversations between her and informant Greg Smith, and other incriminating communications, images, and videos. Much of the trial consisted of the prosecution presenting their evidence. In fact, the defense did not call a single witness to testify, nor did they present any of their own evidence. In opening statements, defense attorney Heilman alleged to the jury that Dee, Dee already had all of Abraham's money, so there was no reason for her to kill him. His death accomplished nothing. Therefore, she would have not needed or wanted to do it. Although Dede had given many varying versions of Abraham's death to many people, the defense stuck with that narrative for the extent of the trial. One of the first witnesses the prosecution called to the stand was Cedric Edom, the cousin who had brought Abraham's mother a letter, which was supposedly signed by Abraham. When Cedric testified, however, he made it clear that Abraham had nothing to do with writing the letter. In fact, Cedric testified that Dede Moore bribed him into giving Miss Walker the letter. He claimed that at the time, he believed that his cousin Abraham really was just trying to get away from everyone. But at the time, he saw how worried his aunt Elizabeth was. so when Dee, Dee approached him asking for a favor. And promising five thousand dollars in return, Cedric accepted. Though he had initially agreed to help Deedee, Dee, Cedric told the jury that she started asking him to do more, but he was no longer willing to help, given the nature of what she was asking him to do. After delivering the letter to Miss Walker, Deedee Dee asked Cedric if he would be willing to call in an anonymous tip to authorities saying that he had spotted Abraham on the street a few towns over. Again, according to Cedric's testimony, Didi offered a large cash amount in exchange. However, this worried him and made him think that something bad had happened to Abraham. Cedric said he refused Didi's request. He testified that she contacted him a few more times after that, asking him to call in a sighting. Claimed that he had spoken to Abraham recently, and even asking him to pass along made-up stories as to where Abraham was. This included a made-up story by Didi explaining that Abraham had contracted AIDS and flew to another country to get medical care. Cedric said he knew at that point that Didi either knew Abraham was in trouble or was the reason Abraham was in trouble. Either way, Cedric continued to deny Dee's offers. He said Dee's most significant request came to him not long before she was arrested. Sounding desperate, Cedric said that Dee Dee asked him if he knew anyone who would be willing to admit to murdering Abraham. She said she could offer $50,000 to the person who would admit to killing him and be willing to serve any jail time that might go along with that confession. Cedric refused once more, leaving a panicked Deedee behind. Later in the trial, the prosecution called to the stand the informant who authorities had used in their investigation, Greg Smith. Greg had knowledge of the detailed plans Deedee had made to cover up Abraham's death, and all of it was recorded. After agreeing to be an informant, Greg was always equipped with a wire while he was speaking with Deedee. According to Greg, he often had a Red Bull drink with him, so it felt most natural to hide the wire inside the can whenever he met with Didi. Dee Dee. After having Greg act as Abraham and call Miss Walker at the Cracker Barrel, Didi Dee Dee could be heard in the recordings conspiring with Greg regarding how best to explain Abraham's disappearance. At one point during the secretly recorded conversation, Didi became hysterical and claimed that she was being framed by authorities for the murder of Abraham. Up until that point, she had always claimed that Abraham was alive. That was the first time she hinted to Greg that she knew otherwise. Soon after that conversation, Didi switched her goal from trying to explain where Abraham was to trying to explain why he was dead. She discussed these plans with Greg extensively, who, of course, was recording all of it. Greg recounted for the jury that there were many different ways Dee Dee explained away Abraham's death to him over the course of numerous conversations. According to Greg, who had recorded conversations to back him, Dee Dee first claimed that Abraham had been shot by a drug dealer named Ronald, and that after he killed Abraham, Ronald pointed the gun at her and told her to hide the body or he would kill her and her son. During another conversation, she claimed that one man who owed Abraham over a million dollars was the one who killed him. In yet another conversation, Deedee claimed that her own son killed Abraham in an act of self-defense. The prosecution pointed out to the jury that it was obvious Deedee was willing to blame anyone other than herself, and she was willing to drag Abraham's reputation through the mud in order to keep herself out of trouble. Greg continued his testimony and spoke about the time a couple of weeks before her arrest that Didi approached him and asked if he knew anyone who was willing to admit to murdering Abraham Shakespeare, and would serve any jail time willingly. Previous witness, Cedric, testified that Didi had also asked him to do this, but he refused. Knowing that this was a great way to get more information, Greg told Didi that he would find somebody. Instead, of course. He approached authorities with the information, and a new plan was set in place. Greg, in cahoots with investigators, brought Deedee the man she was looking for and said he was willing to say he murdered Abraham and was willing to serve any jail time in exchange for the $50,000 she was offering. The so-called contract killer, however, was an undercover investigator. Greg told Deedee that two things had to happen in order for authorities to believe the fall man's story. The fall man would have to know where Abraham's body was hidden, and he needed to know where the murder weapon was. Otherwise, authorities may not find the fall man credible. Deedee thought about it and ultimately agreed. The two then made plans to go to the location of Abraham's body, but Dee Dee only wanted Greg to go with her. She told Greg to meet her at 5802 U.S. Highway 60 the following day. When Greg met up with Dee Dee at the address she provided, he was surprised to see that she was holding a gun. As he approached, Dee Dee explained to Greg that this was the gun used on Abraham, the murder weapon, and that he should keep it and give it to the man who was going to admit to the murder. Greg took the gun, a Smith & Wesson pistol, and put it in his car. They then walked together through the house to the backyard. When they walked out onto the porch, a newly poured concrete slab, Dee Dee indicated that Abraham was beneath them. After leaving his meeting with Dee Dee, Greg took this information, along with the murder weapon, back to authorities, who were able to secure a warrant, which ultimately led to the discovery of Abraham's body. The prosecution outlined for the jury everything that pointed to Didi as the killer. She was in possession of the murder weapon. The body of Abraham was buried at a property she owned. She was recorded on countless occasions attempting to cover up or explain away Abraham's disappearance and, the prosecutor explained, that one other witness would testify that Deedee was the person who buried Abraham's body. Deedee's ex-husband was called by the prosecution to explain his accidental involvement in burying Abraham's body. According to the ex-husband, Deedee had called him and asked if he could come over to dig a large hole in her backyard using a backhoe. The ex-husband agreed and came over one afternoon. He ended up digging a hole between seven and nine feet deep. He then went home, thinking that his work was done. However, a few hours later, Didi called again, asking if he could refill the hole that he had just dug. Again, he agreed, and soon he was back at Didi's house. When he returned to her house, he told the jury that he could see a trash bag and other random objects in the hole. He asked her what she was burying, but she gave general information and never really answered his question. Unfazed, the ex-husband refilled the hole and went back home. It wasn't until the press announced that Abraham's body had been found that he realized what he had done. He approached authorities hoping that it didn't seem as though he was part of her plan, and he quickly agreed to testify against Deedee. Throughout the trial, Deedee was anything but quiet. She was highly emotional and animated, so much so that the judge chastised her on multiple occasions, saying that she had to hold it together or she would be removed from the courtroom. The judge accused her of attempting to testify from the table rather than from the witness stand, and, he said, he would not tolerate it. Dee Dee, however, continued to be emotional throughout the trial. She also frequently spoke with the press, alleging on multiple occasions that she was not being defended well, and that the prosecution was inaccurately making her out to be a monster. She was heard saying that if she was hearing about herself on TV through the trial— she wouldn't want to ever meet herself. At the end of the trial, the prosecution closed its case by saying that Dee Dee Moore had greed running through her veins, which was the only reason that Abraham Shakespeare was killed. They alleged that even though she had taken all of his money, his assets, anything else he had in his possession, Dee, Dee knew that as long as Abraham was alive, there was always a chance that her newfound wealth could be taken from her. To prevent this, the prosecution claimed that Didi murdered Abraham, hid his body, and lied to his friends and family for months. She held loans and money over other people's heads to get them to help her cover up his death. The prosecution called Didi a con artist, who swindled everything she could out of a man under the pretense of trying to help. According to the prosecution, when Abraham Shakespeare died on April sixth, two 2009, he had less than $14,000 to his name, a result of Dee Moore entering his life. The defense's closing argument was similar to their opening. After calling no witnesses and presenting no countering evidence, The defense said that Dee had no reason to kill Abraham. She already had his fortune. His death would have done her no good. They claimed that the evidence presented by the prosecution was all circumstantial and was by no means enough to convict Dee of first-degree murder. With that, the jury was released to deliberate. It took them just over three hours to come to a verdict. The jury vote was unanimous. They found Darice Deedee Moore guilty of the first-degree murder of Abraham Shakespeare. Despite having theatrical emotional outbursts throughout the trial, Deedee was cold and unemotional when she heard the verdict. Though Florida is a death penalty state, the death sentence was not sought after in her case. Because of this, Judge Battles ordered Deedee to serve one full-life term, without the possibility of parole, with an additional 25 years for the use of an unregistered firearm during the murder. In his sentencing, Judge Battle said that Deedee was cold, calculating, and cruel. The prosecution successfully proved in court that Deedee had purchased expensive cars, homes, and more, using funds from the account she'd set up for Abraham, under the guise of helping him. The evidence against her was overwhelming and left no room for doubt about her dark motives. After her sentencing, Dee Dee Moore was not silent and surprisingly, or maybe not, she maintained her innocence. She filed an appeal soon after she was sentenced, claiming that she was not properly represented. According to one interview with the press, she claimed that had she been on the jury— she would have found herself guilty as well. She claimed that her defense had many different witnesses whom they could have called witnesses who would have proven her innocence. She claimed that her defense team didn't interview a single one of them. She also said that authorities were prejudiced against her from the start, claiming that once they met her, it was quickly decided that she was responsible and they simply built a case to prove she was guilty. Dee's behavior during trial seemed to be an indication of what her post-trial actions would be. She has managed to keep her case in the spotlight, recently securing an interview on the TV show Women Who Kill. In one notable quote that came from her interview, Dee was recorded saying, "'I would have not killed a man in the only carpeted room in the house. Come on, I'm a woman.'" Dee Dee has continued attempting to get her life sentence overturned to no avail today she continues to serve her sentence Abraham's family though devastated by their loss has done their best to move forward winning the lottery was likely one of the most defining moments of Abraham Shakespeare's life he seized that moment by selflessly giving to those who were in need never knowing that all the while A predator had been plotting to change her own life by taking away Abraham's. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Stick around after the closing music to hear a promo for Trouble's podcast. Make sure to search for and subscribe to the show. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you to Katie W., Amber F., Josh R., and Rachel C. for becoming Patreon subscribers. I really appreciate you guys. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. I've been doing a lot of interactive Q&As on IG stories, so follow me on Instagram at MurderishPodcast if you want to participate. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, just tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgeman. After the closing music and podcast promo, you're also going to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hey everyone, I'm Phyllis and I'm from Cameroon. I'm Aziza and I'm from Sierra Leone. And I'm Monique and I'm from Cameroon. We are three besties bringing you an intense African true crime podcast. We bring you three crazy crime cases each week, filling your day with suspense. Taking you to different countries on the beautiful continent of Africa each week, even the countries you probably didn't know existed. Because contrary to popular belief, there are 54 of them, and we will give you an interesting fact about each and every one. With some cases you've likely never heard before. The stories we cover go from heartbreaking, solved, unsolved, to absolutely ridiculous. We have a love for true crime and want to share some stories with you from our roots because every victim has a story to tell. We are available on all podcast platforms. Come check us out. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See ya! Sources for this episode include a February 14, 2010 NBC Universal News Group article at NBCNews.com. A Tampa Bay Times article dated December 11, 2012 at Newspapers.com. An article by Juan Ignacio Blanco at Murderpedia.org. A 2012 ABC News Network article by Kevin Dolock at abcnews.go.com. A February 1st, 2017 article in The Sun at thesun.co.uk by Ellie Flynn. A Fox 13 Tampa Bay article by Gloria Gomez dated October 14th, 2019. An April 1st, 2019 article at bustle.com by Lolly King. A blog by Megan at the Charlie Project blog dated September 3rd, 2011 at charlieross.wordpress.com. A Tampa Bay Times 2018 article at tampabay.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death